Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. Hello, this is Wendy Thurgood, the independent trainer for Wessex LMC. I'm here having a conversation, level three safeguarding conversation in relation to adults and children. I'm here joined by partners and I'll let them introduce themselves. I'll come to Mary first. Hi, uh, my name is Dr. Mary Fence. I'm a GP in Bedford and I've been a GP in Bedfordshire for 24 years. Thank you, Mary. Over to Sally. Hi there, my name's Sally Mortimer. Um, I'm a social worker. I've been a social worker just over 25 years and I run a company called ADOWER, which is a social enterprise that provides independent social work and quality assurance services, principally in safeguarding and looked after children's services. Thank you, Sally. And lastly but not least, Mark. Yeah, my name's uh, Mark Pearson. I'm Chief Executive Officer of a community interest company called Excelsior uh, Safeguarding. The main thrust of my work is training professionals across agencies on gangs, youth violence, knives and criminal uh, exploitation and also a lot of early intervention work uh, within primary schools for years five and six, building their resilience to saying no to gangs, drugs and violence. Excellent. So we've got a wealth of experience from police, um, medical and social care. So the conversation today, as I say, is aimed really looking at the tricky, thorny issues that you're faced with every day in relation to safeguarding. So we come to Sally now, who's the social worker from this conversation. So again, the same question in relation to um, challenges and positives that you find working with um, GPs and practice nurses and midwives and health visitors, if you can give any case examples, but any particular challenges and positive side please yeah sure I think um, challenges for children's social care particularly within uh, child protection investigations and conferences um, they usually relate to timing uh, to make sure that we can get everybody around the table at the right time um, responses to requests for information um, attendance at, at, at conferences and the submission of reports uh, to these conferences um, in particular, the quality of reports um, are all massive challenges, um, mainly because we don't understand how each other works. And certainly, um, I think we're not clear about um, processes and roles and responsibilities around all of these kind of child protection processes. A common question that GPs bring up time and time again when I'm training is in relation to the timing of case conferences and whether they can be done any differently if they can't attend. Because if they have 30 patients to see that morning, there's no way they can attend a case conference. So has anything ever been done imaginally about the timings and how they can actually input to conferences? Yes, we certainly recognise that. Um, and in the same way that when it's imperative that a school um, is, is present at a conference to provide information about a child's education, therefore um, conferences need to be held after 4pm. There's exactly the same principle if, if there's important information that a GP or another medical professional needs to be present, there's, you know, there's no reason why a conference can't be held later in the afternoon or before clinics start or in between clinics, there's no reason. Um, and I think um, you know, our current situation is we're all 
we're having a conversation yeah. now, all five five of us dotted around the country. Um, there's absolutely no reason I can see, and I, that's one of my questions for my for my colleagues here. Is there any reason why conferences can't invite some professionals to contribute and to participate via remote means? You know, because that might take up ten minutes, and certainly. Um, my company, Ada, we provide uh, child protection conference chairs who are currently running all of their um, meetings at the moment via uh, Teams or Skype. And they're doing just that and it's working well and we can still have those yeah. conversations and make the right decisions. I, th I think I think once this whole period is over, I definitely think it's something to look at. And it's definitely something that I was working on in relation to actually getting the GP's voice and actually him being able to hear what's actually being said at the conference because it's not just about a GP coming along and giving their information it's about hearing the rest the social impact on the child that's really helpful Sally I'm going to move on to Mary now who is a GP um, so we'll come back for questions later if that's okay so Mary it's um, the same question to you, really. You are um, a lead within a practice. And so if you'd just like to share from your point of view, and equally, if you've got any examples of good practice or any thorny issues that we can just tease out. So over to you, Mary. Okay. So I think um, traditionally over the years, um, we all know from serious case reviews, the big problem is that communication is poor um, amongst professionals. Um, and uh, I think uh, things that have contributed to that have been a lack of joined up IT between social care, uh, other branches of health. Um, that, that's always been difficult. But also that whole business of, as Sally was alluding to, that GPs are uh, in, a, in a sort of different world. We, we have our world split up into 10 minute appointments and then visits and then more appointments and clinics. Um, and getting uh, sort of hand grenade requests for um, uh, important information. Uh, often it would be a Friday afternoon and you'd get a whole bunch of uh, urgent requests for information. It just makes your heart sink. Um, and so I think uh, certainly in terms of communicating with GPs, uh, email is very good. And I think now most um, practices will have a portal where, you know, the admin guys are aware that something comes in urgent and it's coming in from social care, then that needs to be actioned and put under the nose of duty GP. Um, I think trying to play telephone ping pong over the years has always frustrated everyone. Um, I think certainly something that made a big difference in terms of our ability to communicate appropriately and I think help more helpfully uh, was the in uh, introduction of our local MASH, our multi-agency safeguarding hub. So where we knew that health and social care and police were sitting together literally in a room. Uh, and as again, Sally said that the introduction of templates for information request made all the difference to, uh, certainly to myself, knowing what information was important and relevant and uh, certainly our local templates ask um, in-depth questions about the the parental mental health physical health any other concerns so I think um, for most practices now if you've got a local mash um, are requesting information uh, hopefully that is being dealt with and um, sorted succinctly because I think general practices I'd, well, I'd like to think realize how important safeguarding is that it's not an optional extra for those who perhaps just have a little bit of a, a special interest it is something 
you know, it is everyone's responsibility within a practice. So I know certainly from our point of view, when a MASH or request for information comes in, that is pretty much dealt with by um, admin who have been trained how to scour the notes. And then it is passed under the nose of duty GP to check for you know, information that perhaps um, uh, an admin person can't understand or, or have a hold on, which might be sort of resilience factors within a family or lack of resilience factors. So those are, are, are dealt with, I hope, and turned around much more quickly. And also the RAG rating that comes with those uh, requests for information makes all the difference for a busy GP to just go to prioritise what they need to uh, action and sort out. To go to case conferences, I mean, I've attended a couple over the years, um, but I think um, certainly I'd like to think that general practice will not work the same again in the future and that use of this kind of format, which I know I'm a bit lumpy with, but we're getting better with, um, I think a very, very valid point about, you know, it's not just what information a, a general practice can bring to a case conference. Uh, it's also um, hearing what the interaction is and being able to respond in, in real time to that, I think is important. So what we have, certainly for child safeguarding, we have six weekly meetings um, and we have two GPs, so myself and another GP with a special interest. Um, we have our safeguarding nurse for the practice. We have one of the practice managers who will deputise and do MASH uh, responses when needed. We also have a dedicated safeguarding admin person um, and our linked health visitor um, uh, comes to that meeting as well. Um, I think for all of us, one of the biggest problems with safeguarding and the thing that worried us most was when we lost our um, practice aligned health visitors, because now certainly for us, health visiting, it's aligned to areas to make it easier for health visitors to visit. And I can understand that, but it means that you might have four, five, six health visitors looking after all your children which you know in the olden days our one health visitor should be in and out and like you Sally we'd be having a cup of coffee and we'd be able to highlight all the the worry uh, the, the worrying families and, and situations but having said that with our linked health visitor that has worked very well um, and she will go back and she will speak to her relevant colleagues about you know updates and, and what's needed happening We've also, as a practice, we have a watch list. So that involves, obviously, all the children on the child protection programme, um, or plan, rather, children uh, in need. Uh, we have our lack list, um, our looked-after children list. But we also run on that list of children that we as doctors or professionals in the practice are worried about. So they may not have reached the threshold for referral to social care, but we just may be uneasy. We may just may be concerned that there's something evolving. Um, so they are on what we call our watch list. And that is monitored by our admin guy who, because one of the really important things, you can put these lists together, but they don't mean anything if the information isn't up to date. Uh, and we've found that over the years, especially with the way that computer systems work in general practice, that what we call icons can be put on that highlight stuff for patients and they appear on your safeguarding list. And then you realize that they're 22 years old. Uh, and in fact, it's their children who are now needing to be on the safeguarding list. So um, uh, our, our admin guy, Tom, he does a grand job and he liaises with social care. Um, because one of the difficult things that has evolved, in a sense, because MASH has become so successful um, and so busy that they do not feed back to us now automatically what is happening. And I think that's something that we as GPs struggle with. We're trying to do our bit. But actually, if we're not finding out what's happening 
uh, with the cases that we've raised, with the inquiries that we've contributed to, then we feel anxious about that. So we've embedded that in our practice that Tom will uh, catch up with MASH on a regular basis. So other things in terms of what's embedded, uh, you know, within our, our practice, certainly um, our admin who deal with new registrations are very quick to highlight unusual registrations, uh, new kids coming in um, and uh, whether they are living at the same address as the adult who's trying to register them and things like that. So we, we, we get a lot of sort of tasks and questions asked by our um, registration um, Guys, because another thing that is a, a challenge and we found is that um, we can get children coming in from out of area who are already on a plan or children need. Um, and that information ends up on our on our notes. But we are not advised of that child now being our patient, potentially. So stuff is happening and conversations are happening across the, the, the different social care uh, agencies. But the GPs are not actually formally advise that they've now got a child who's on a child protection plan uh, and that's something that we've stumbled across quite a few times which is is quite difficult uh, but again as we've um, trained up our registration clerks to, to sort of have their ears and eyes open for, for unusual patterns of registration hopefully we're, we're not missing those situations um, yeah, maybe we'll be having um, the next phase of the child information sharing system CPIS um, will be linked with general practice. Has any conversation happened with your practice in relation to being a pilot for that? Uh, not that I'm aware of. I haven't. I haven't heard that. But that would be fantastic. Yeah, and that that will mean that um, automatically when you're registering the child, you'll be able to see if they're known to other services and other agencies. Mm. And that's in the phase two rollout. Um, but it may have stalled. Um, but I know GPs um, are definitely on that list. It's happening regularly within A&E's um, maternity services um, and obviously police and social care can actually see these children that are being tracked, um, particularly interested in these children that are being moved around in these families. Mm. Sorry, okay. I carry on. No, so, so, I mean, that, that's sort of how we are with our child safeguarding. And I think it's it's really important. We have been reminded by our um, BMA um, and GMC about the fact that despite lockdown, um, our obligation to safeguarding remains just the same. And I would say, actually, uh, I, I don't see any reason why why we would change that. We would not least because we know that there's an increased problem around adult and child safeguarding uh, as a result of lockdown but I think our processes are enabling us to to continue to be vigilant um, uh, to, to do that um, so if, perhaps if we've just gone to adult safeguarding um, I mean that's a very it seems quite a much more fluid area because that whole business of who is a vulnerable adult and the definition uh, is is very variable depending on who you ask. Um, there's the, the, the people for whom you, you definitely might raise us over, but then there are people who at different times and in different places will become vulnerable for a temporary period. Um, so I think we, we, we struggle a bit with that, but I th hopefully have our eyes and ears open much more to, to vulnerable adults i mean we in uh, uh, well even now still 
being done virtually by Zoom. Every two weeks, we have a multidisciplinary team meeting for adults, um, not just vulnerable adults. They may be adults who are using A&E a lot, who are, uh, have various other issues and problems who are complicated and complex. Um, and in that MDT, uh, we have two GPs, dedicated admin, community matrons, social worker, and mental health liaison worker. And they would meet every two weeks to discuss, a, again, an increasing list of people. And but these are adults who have to be, um, they have to have uh, consented to have their case discussed. So, of course, there'll be a number of adults who are vulnerable and we're worried about, and they will not necessarily have um, uh, agreed that that's, their, their problems are, are, are discussed in a wider uh, forum um, and I suppose some of those are our um, patients with domestic abuse issues, ongoing domestic abuse. Mary that's a really good point actually because um, over the last two weeks we've seen an increase in relation to domestic homicide so I think we'll come over to Mark now to just pick up that thread from in relation to domestic violence because again that always raises quite a lot of questions when I'm training so if a GP is faced with a woman um, that she knows if she lets out of her surgery, um, this is often a question that comes up. So she's sitting faced with a woman or a child that's at risk. What is their responsibility? So if it's a woman to get to a refuge um, in time at lockdown, would it be right that somebody from a domestic violence unit, the ISVAs, would help transport the lady or... Is it a case that you put her on public transport and expect her to get to the refuge? Well, this is where there's challenges, I think. The problem is, is between different police forces, there may be different responses uh, to that. I think the domestic um, abuse, domestic violence unit are absolutely critical to managing those cases successfully in liaison uh, with the GPs and the IDVAs you know, perform such an important role um, and offer a much better quality of service because of their knowledge and expertise and the advice that they can offer to the GP in that situation uh, as well. Um, I've always found phoning into uh, mashes can be of benefit as well to um, ask their advice. I've only, I've always found them only too willing to um, offer advice in, in, in those kinds of circumstances. Yeah. Um, and you so talked a bit about um, the county lines, the, the children that are being exploited. There was, when it first sort of exploded, the fact that the police force would actually take them back to where they came. Um, and of course, that could be placing them directly at risk. I've been trying to work on a national level, um, holding conversations in relation to how we can hold these children safely. Has there been any advances in relation to that? Is the contextual side of the safeguarding where we could perhaps hold them in the area where they've been identified to actually protect them? But I'm not sure where we've moved on that. Um, I think that can differ uh, across force areas. Um, it very much depends on the professional's knowledge of criminal exploitation. Uh, I, I agree with you that you may may have situations where uh, you've got um, a young person and the adult, the mother, the father, uh, carer within that home uh, is being cuckooed by county lines gangs and the home has been taken over and they are uh, being exploited to 
uh, deal drugs on the gang's behalf or allow them to use that premises to wrap the drugs and and distribute them. So really the last place you want to place that young person is back in into uh, that environment. Um, also, there may be examples of them witnessing violence within the context of a cookering address or being subjected to violence. You know, some, some of the violence that young people can be subjected to uh, could easily be described um, as torture. Um, so, yeah, there has to be a really good knowledge of the risks that are associated specifically to criminal exploitation and the increasing levels of violence um, being used. But I have to say, from what I've seen, is that the multi-agency multi safeguarding hubs have been a, a step in the right direction. And there is a much better response to these things. And many of the police forces, multi-agency training sessions are focusing very much on educating uh, around the intricacies and sophistication of criminal exploitation, but also helping un better understand the risks associated with uh, violence and, and how that can be better referred into existing child protection mechanisms. I'll just invite Mary actually to make a comment because um, some of the GPs when I've been doing training have actually mentioned they've been left out of part of those conversations in relation to the children that are identified within their their area um, because they're not actually on a child protection and Sally you may have some comments they're not actually on a child protection list so I very much say that actually if we can have a partnership conversation of these children that we're concerned about that we can actually put them on CPIS as children of concern um, especially if they're going missing so Mary within your practice do you have um, Awareness in relation to the county lines, Bedford, I should imagine, um, is quite active. Yeah, uh, it's really interesting, actually, because for a big practice and we've got a very mixed demographic, um, I, I think we've perhaps only come across one child, young person who the, where there have been concerns about the county lines. But I, a few years ago, uh, until a few years ago, I was um, uh, I used to go into a local large uh, comprehensive school, which had a um, uh, yeah, I, I had a role there basically to help with uh, kids with their mental health and uh, kids able to access sort of a, a doctor without having to access go via their GPs because of the concerns of various communities blocking their young people accessing any kind of sexual health, mental health, things like that. And in that school, um, I worked very, the, the, the um, nurse I worked very closely with, she basically did safeguarding the whole time and the, the, the amount of county line stuff that was coming through with their pupils um, it, it, it was incredible. And certainly Bed Bedford has a very big um, drug problem uh, and has done historically for a long time uh, but it is it, it is interesting that actually in general practice we're hearing very little if anything about it or, or being involved in those conversations I think it is all happening with social care and school. Uh, yeah um, there's an awful lot of investment from the NHS at the moment in uh, designated safeguarding nurses, health visitors being trained up uh, to be far more aware of the lights to cooking addresses and criminal exploitation signs to to look for, but very rarely are GPs um, 
at those venues receiving uh, the training. So I think there's considerable opportunity for mm. uh, GPs to be uh, trained up. And um, strangely enough, on the, the best practice child criminal exploitation assessment tool from Knowlesley, uh, GPs are listed as a key contributor to that risk assessment. And I've always found uh, when I was in the police that GPs, if if more so than many other agencies, uh, better knew their their clients and the background of the families over time, which is a very important consideration for any form of risk assessment. But I, th- I think another challenge is around the raising of risk thresholds. So what you do see is um, with risk assessment groups that are for- forming that um, what would have been high risk in the past falls in high medium risk and they don't always get to the child protection table um, or get a tagging for for cps so there is an acceptance from all agencies that that does happen and it's um how do we actually better manage that within the existing risk management processes um if we're not going to cp them there's so many links here. We, Mary talked about communication and what we know kind of from serious case reviews and lessons learned reviews kind of after um, there's been some kind of tragedy. Um, and I wonder how much of that relates to a lack of communication. I still think it's important that we talk to each other. If we provide um, shared learning opportunities, which aren't... I, I'm not sure whether GPs don't attend because they're not invited. I suspect that might be the case, or they don't they don't attend because it's it's not fitting in with with um, their schedules. But certainly, you know, that's where a lot of those really important conversations happen, where you know people are able to to share their views, share their experiences, and share that kind of softer intelligence. Um, and I know there's a lot of anxiety around for people about data protection, about sharing information, <clears throat> but, uh, but it's some of those opportunities. We're not, we don't always create those and we don't always encourage those. Mary's putting her hand up. Yeah, just say, I mean, I, I really value the multi-agency safeguarding um, training that I go on and I, I try and find that because actually I don't want to sit in a room with just GPs and hear the same old stuff um, and certainly in Bedford we have had some really good multi-agency training and I would just really encourage all GPs and actually the, the, the problem is you know we have this CPD we've got this large amount of stuff we have to get through to, to justify our, our existence educationally um, and so it's the path of least resistance um, that in a sense the downside of some of the um, uh, high-tech stuff is that we can do online learning we can do blue stream learning and there's level three safeguarding on there for adults and children which actually you know quite quite good but I would still encourage and and at least if those things can be done in this kind of forum certainly uh, I've learned some of the best stuff from the multi-agency training that I've been on. It's a real opportunity to understand the perspectives of the other and also create mm. strong collaborative uh, relationships. And um, for me, for example, uh, I retired from the police just, just under three years ago and have been training 
partners across agencies. And um, when I was in the police, I thought I knew it all about criminal exploitation and, and domestic abuse. But I've learned far more in those three years outside yeah. of the police, talking to partners and understanding their different aspects than I did singularly um, within the, uh, the police force. So I'm, I'm a great advocate for that. And I, I think it's, it, it is a shame that uh, we, we don't more often see GPs at the table in that training benefiting from that, that wonderful experience that's offered. So is there any other questions? We're coming to the end of this podcast. Is there any questions or thoughts that you'd like to share to people that are going to be listening to this? Yeah, just on the uh, training aspect and going back to safeguarding children partnerships, um, I have found whenever you go to their websites consistently, they have got a wonderful suite of training uh, available. And often there's not many people attending that training. So I'm, I'm not necessarily sure that all the agencies are being made aware of what is available. It's more a come-to portal for accessing training. And I, I do wonder if there's an opportunity to spread the message more from Safeguarding Children Partnerships because the training that is offered is, is, is excellent. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And, and as we move into equal partners, health, police and social care, um, it is there and it's accessible and you're all paying into it. So it is key that it is able to be used, especially for that advanced level um, where you're having some deeper conversations, deeper training in relation to specific subjects. So that's a really good point. Thank you, Mark. Mary? I don't think general practice will ever be the same again after COVID. Uh, and what I'd hope is some of the really... Uh, useful things that we've learned about this kind of you know opportunity to have a multi-agency conversation uh, easily relatively um, you know ho hopefully we will be able to make more of that so that we are not siloed in our general practices and not part of of that 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 wider action uh, to, to, to safeguard our, our vulnerable patients. Sally did you want to say something final? I just wanted to say thank you for this opportunity. It's uh, it's really good to have uh, professionals from the three core agencies or three core backgrounds to to have a conversation where there's lots of noddings of head nodding of heads and um, an agreement. And I'm hopeful that this might help move some things forward. So thank you thank very you. much. It, it's been I think everyone's been very transparent and very open and honest about the challenges. And I think there's some themes that we can take away from this I, I definitely think we can do more in relation to child exploitation it's something that I think happens in the background and that we're not all inclusive um, thank you very much for joining and giving up your time to have this conversation keep safe keep well thank you Wessex LMC's supporting you and your practice <laughs>